In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Today's Gospel is paradoxical and perplexing in a number of ways, but perhaps most immediately by offering us no entirely obvious single interpretation. Save for one point, namely that as in most parables, as one rapidly tries to sort the story out, one tries to reassure oneself that no points apply to oneself. The bad man in this case is easy to spot, after all. He gets tied up, dragged out, and thrown into the outer darkness, where there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it is at least clear that we do not want to be like him. At least that can be said. The problem comes when we ask what exactly he did to deserve that fate, since if we don't want to be like him, that would be useful to know. But there's also another puzzle. But there seems to be an important tension in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole in regard to the matter of violence. For Christians, after all the actions and teachings of Jesus as depicted in the Gospels, are clearly of particular importance. And when you think about that and the manner of his life and message, how does that stand in relation to violence? Clearly, he is the ultimate victim of violence, but is never violent himself, nor does he ever advocate it. Do we not all turn to the Sermon on the Mount for guidance and see it as an exemplary model of his teaching? Surely we do. And there Jesus teaches his disciples to turn the other cheek, to love their enemies, and to pray for those who persecute them. Such actions, the Matthaean Jesus asserts, imitate those of God, who offers boundless, gratuitous love to all, even evildoers. But that portrait of God seems at odds with the images presented by no less than eight of the parables in Matthew, for they show God dealing violently with evildoers. That tension poses a dilemma. If disciples of Jesus are children of God who are supposed to emulate the, divine, the ways of the divine, which ways are they to follow? Is Jesus' teaching on nonviolence in the Sermon on the Mount absolute? Or are there situations in which violence is a proper moral response? I need hardly point out, after the events of recent days, how pressing those issues are, and indeed for the people of Israel today in particular, as well as for the rest of the world, confronted as we have been by horrific deeds of violence and evil. What is the right response? But for the moment I must leave that larger question to focus specifically on this parable in the Gospel as we have it today. Where, as I pointed out in my opening. Beyond seeing that there was one very bad man thrown out for not wearing a wedding garment, clarity then seems to end. As the earlier narration does not make it immediately evident just where he went wrong, beyond his evidently irrecoverable faux pas in being wrongly dressed for the occasion. 
Gathered as we are in these environments of Beacon Hill, one should not trivialise the gravity of the faux pas of fashion. <laughs> or it's impossible to imagine even a member of staff in one of our fine establishments being asked to leave on account of getting that wrong. But I trust they would not be bound hand and foot and left in permanent outer darkness. But then again, the oddity of the story runs far deeper than such trivial jests might invite us to suppose. For the parable shows the guest thrown out so abruptly was only at the, ba the banquet because he had been caught up in a sweep undertaken by the host's servants who had gone out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both good and bad. It's an important point. And then, having been dragged in thus, quite unexpectedly, he finds himself condemned for failing to wear the celebrated wedding garment. This hardly seems reasonable or fair. How could it be fair, after all, to force someone to attend an event and then condemn that person for failing to be dressed properly at it? And the final sentence of the Gospel, placed as though it were the moral of the story, hardly seems entirely to help. Namely that phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. Having said that, there is one way to create a path through this which would probably be obvious to any self-respecting Calvinist. For within that perspective, by virtue of the fact that we are all fallen creatures since the time of Adam and Eve, we have all sinned, and by this fact we exclude ourselves from the possibility of a right relationship with God left to ourselves. Nonetheless, God of his great mercy is pleased to elect some to salvation and to impute righteousness to them so that they can be saved and make it to heaven. And Calvin would have added that within this picture we should not focus on the seeming inequity of only some being saved, but rather be thankful that any are saved, since none of us in fact deserves out of our own capacity such a salvation, for we can never do enough ourselves to atone for our sins. Moreover, since the Calvinist, for the Calvinist, we are destitute in our natural state of sin, on account of the doctrine they would hold of total depravity, there would be no rational way to choose among us. We have instead to rely, therefore, on the inscrutable workings of a benevolent God in bestowing salvation on those whom he elects. And looked at from that perspective, the king of the parable is simply not to be judged for his actions. He transcends our capacity for analysis and judgment. No doubt because he, by virtue of who he is, sees a bigger picture than we, in our lowly perspective, could ever hope to do. And the king is arguably, in any case, perhaps outside all categories, including those of moral and of choice. A controversial perspective for some, but it might be a point on which there would be a coming together, arguably, of Calvin and Aquinas. Then again, as a simple matter of fact, this unfortunate fellow thrown out was not wearing a wedding garment. Thus, from a factual point of view, he deserved not to be there if that was a criterion. Just as we are all sinners and never of ourselves deserve to be saved, but must instead depend upon the mercy of God. Though even on this analysis there's a puzzle in that it seems to be implied that all the other guests, even though like him they'd been rounded up off the streets, did have wedding garments. 
and there's no explanation of how they got them. Unless we are to suppose that the conventions of the time were so powerfully clear that only someone very lacking in judgment would fail to wear the appropriate attire, however tricky and difficult it was to obtain. And more widely, the Calvinist analysis does seem to fit insofar as like all human beings since the fall, none of the guests actually merited being at the wedding. Yet the king, for reasons all of his own, had caused them to be brought to it. Thus, in a sense, the miscreant thrown out merely shows the fate all, in fact, deserved, if not for the mercy of the king, Calvin's point. But that perspective rather overlooks then again the significance of the wedding garment. And afterwards, having seen, of course, what happened to him, I suppose, those who remained certainly did have reason to join in the festivities, if not so much just out of joy, out of relief. But what if we're not Calvinists? Is it plausible to suppose that this approach fits in with the rest of St. Matthew's Gospel? Is there an other, another way to look at these things? Well, here it's perhaps helpful to recall the Jewish intellectual context in which St. Matthew was working. It has for long been realized by Christian scholars that looking at our text with reference to the prior Jewish context can prove very illuminating and particularly when we look at the parables of Jesus in relation to the parables Messalim in the corpus of rabbinic literature in order to elucidate a gospel text. And here I'm going to make reference to three Hebrew words of which at least the first should be in some degree familiar, Midrash, Mashal and Nimshal, where a Mashal is a short parable with a moral lesson or religious allegory called a Nimshal. As scholars have argued, the exegetical functioning of parables within rabbinic midrashim appears to coincide with the tendencies of those parables to gravitate over time towards one very particular stereotypical form. As the mashal becomes a representative device of exegesis, its narrative is increasingly assimilated to the literary form of the king mashal which is to say a Jewish parable in which the main character is a king who always stands for God. The parable of the great wedding feast follows on the classic King Mashal model and concludes with that rather enigmatic Nimshal about the calling of many and the choosing of few. To quote words again of the scholars in this field, in this parable the king is God, his son is Jesus, the royal wedding feast is the eschatological banquet, the dual sending of the servants represents, as in the preceding parable of the vineyard laborers, the sending of God's messengers, and the murderer of the servants represents the murder of the prophets and indeed Jesus himself. And the third sending of the servants is on this reading the mission of the church, in which good and evil stand side by side until the end. Thus we can see that a very traditional allegorical interpretation looks compelling. This next prompts the question of which texts or texts are the subject of the Midrash in the case of today's gospel and parable derived or relating to. Here it's possible to argue, as scholars have done, that the paradoxical Nimshah quotes not merely from one but actually two texts to which Matthew intends to demonstrate by this Midrashic method the application. In his version of the Great Feast, 
The Nimshah proof texts here from two sources coincide, for many are called alludes to Zephaniah, while the phrase, but few are chosen, alludes to the apocryphal book of Enoch. Now the text of Zephaniah can be described as a doomsday oracle concerning the day of the Lord. It begins by predicting a worldwide judgment, followed by a specific judgment against Jerusalem and the land of Judea. Judgment falls because of idolatry and apostasy, a falling away of the people of Israel from the true path. Thus, we are told, God has prepared the sacrifice, has secondly invited some people whom he has sanctified, thirdly, but the details are left unspecified. The language of invitation is very much in Zephaniah and accommodates a longing on God's part, the king's part, to bring as many to the feast before the unleashing of the fearful judgment announced by the rest of the oracle in Zephaniah. Finally, the invitees in Zephaniah are those whom God has sanctified. And so in parallel we find in Matthew a, paral a parable warning his own community not to take their position in the kingdom for granted. The need for worthiness clearly does not end thus with the mere acceptance of the invitation to the wedding. Only the sanctified will ultimately prove to be genuine and worthy invitees to the feast day itself. Thus Zephaniah reads, And it will be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will take vengeance on the rulers and on the king's house and upon all that are garbed in strange garments. Hence the reference and importance of the wedding garment. But there is also another text in the background, namely that of Enoch. Enoch concerns God's dealings with the outbreak of evil before Noah's flood. By the agency of his holy angels, God incarcerates Azazel and the other watchers who are fallen angels, pending final destruction on the fires of judgment day. Many commentators in, on Matthew see the incorrectly clothed man as emblematic of those within Matthew's early church community who are unprepared for the judgment. They are thus bad among the good who are thus filling up the wedding hall. And in the early church, this would also have been seen as the people of Israel who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. If so, it seems that false disciples in the church are to be compared with Azazel, a leader of the fallen angels in Enoch. And also, we need to note a precursor of the figure of the scapegoat driven out into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar. In the words of one commentator, thus, however strange it may be to modern tastes, the simplest exegesis of the Matthew passage once is once once we see the allusion to Enoch, is to recognize it as a straightforward one. Sham Christians are virtually manifestations of fallen angels to be driven out. And it is of these that is, it is possible to say they were called, but in the end were not chosen, because they were ultimately rebellious against God. Hence the warning is clear. We must never presume upon our standing before God. We should never be so self-righteous as to presume we can stand unclothed. Rather, we know that we must indeed seek the wedding garment that only the grace of God can provide. 
But lastly, there is something still to be said about that tension in the Gospel of Matthew with regard to violence, where Jesus is always the victim of violence and never a proponent of it in the Gospels. In marked contrast, for example, with the role of the prophet in certain other traditions, where that could include being a military leader. But this portrait of God in Christ is, is at odds, as we've seen with those images presented in those Matthean parables, for these show God dealing violently with evildoers. From the beginning of the Gospel, Matthew portrays, however, Jesus as an innocent victim, always, of violence. Remember, Herod seeks to destroy him, orders the massacre of the innocents. Three times Jesus predicts to his disciples that he will be handed over to suffer and be killed, be mocked, scourged, crucified. So when it comes to the response to violence in Matthew, what are we to think? What are the remedies that come to hand? There is, of course, avoidance or flight, as when the infant Jesus, endangered by Herod, is taken by Joseph to Egypt. There is the other stratagem we see of rejoicing in persecution. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asserts, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And there is the prayer for rescue, as in the Lord's Prayer. Then there is, lastly, the path of non-retaliation, the love of the enemy, the prayer for the persecutors. And Matthew proposes still another response, as when in the Sermon on the Mount, which sets forth Jesus' interpretation of the Torah in six antithetical statements, wherein Jesus successively declares a former understanding of the law inadequate, as his interpretation places more stringent demands on his followers, called to a higher path. Each example offers an alternative way for the injured person to respond by actively confronting the evil, the injustice, with a positive and provocative act. Such a response would be designed to break the cycle of violence and begin a different cycle. The expectation is that this new act will, however, be reciprocal. What emerges is thus a path whereby the one who is estranged out of enmity is invited instead into a path of forgiveness, repentance and reconciliation, the invitation to the evildoer. And it is in the passion narrative that Jesus' teaching on non-violence and love of enemies reaches its climax, where he offers his very self to them in forgiveness and covenant and fidelity. So now, in the light of all this, what are we to make of the violent endings meted out to evildoers in the parables? Clearly, the portrait of God in Matthew as one who offers boundless, gratuitous love even to evildoers is in tension with the violent ways in which God deals with evildoers in those parables. In these parables we are confronted with endings which speak of throwing evildoers into a fiery furnace, binding them hand and foot, casting them out. Endings that present a vastly different picture of how God would act. Is there an inconsistency here? Which path are disciples to take as children of God are supposed to imitate the divine? There are different possible strands and different possible solutions. But I suggest there is a possibility of a contrast being drawn between human responses to human violence versus the ultimate divine perspective and the divine judgment at the end times. Here too there is a paradox. For on the one hand, the way of love and peace is clearly the gospel message 
of the better way here on earth. But fallen humanity may clearly leave us at times with no choice but to act in ways of violence that are not those Jesus commends because they are short of the ideal. While at the end of time, God and the ultimate peace will prevail after, as it seems, the ultimate act of separation from God by those who will not follow him occurs, which is in a sense an ultimate act of violence, consequent upon their choice. For those who have acted uprightly, the end is not a time to be feared, but a welcome relief as they are embraced in the eternal life of God's realm with the righteous. But there is no such relief or solace for evildoers. The problem here and now is how can we apply this end-time separation of evildoers and righteous ones to the present? And what are we as Christians to do in the face of massive evil, something we have seen in the past and still do, do very much in the current time, when ideologies have led to mass murder? Something we have seen in recent days all too horrifically in and around Israel, Palestine and Gaza. The way of the ideal is not always open to us. There are times when some who are indeed evil must be, in that manner, driven from us. That recalls the one who was not wearing the wedding garment, who forsook the offering of God. And that is a chastening and very somber thought. But we are called, nonetheless, at all times, to that message of Philippians. Rejoice, let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be, named, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.